So do you all think that the 80s was the last decade that normal people were allowed to be attractive? Like watching this movie, not that anybody was unattractive, but I felt like everybody could also fit comfortably in a teacher's lounge. Yeah, there's there's something like, um, I don't know, manufactured about modern attractive people. But yeah, you're right. Back then, they it just was like normal dudes, normal dudes and ladies just walking around spaceships. <laughs> like Bryce has detention trouble. written all over her to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Susan has swim coach hair for sure. Uh, whereas <laughs> I feel like the, the cast of Prometheus has never been near a public school. Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. It just shows the fact that, like, in the 80s, they didn't think that there were spacesuits that were extra large or above in size. (laughs) For sure. All right. Well, now that we've uh, investigated that philosophical question that was weighing on me, let's go ahead and get into it. theme song this is necromancer necromancer my name is necromancer ah (laughs) you see you get it tony you get it already uh i'm shira and i'm a fan of romantic comedies i'm brett and i'm a fan of horror movies today we have our ghoul friend with us tony wash what movies do you like uh i mean i would do either but i prefer (laughs) horror I Obviously. thought so. I mean, just based on your oeuvre, I I had a feeling. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I tend to, to focus on that genre when I'm making films. But in terms of watching them, I'll, I'll give anything a watch, especially if I have worn my wife's patience thin with all the horror films I constantly <laughs> shove down her throat on a daily basis. So what's a, what's a good rom-com that you've watched with your wife? Oh, man, what did she introduce me to? She showed me Fool's Russian, which I'd never seen before. Um, What's the other one that we just watched? Uh, We just watched um, The Money Pit, which I think is great because it's it's not a rom-com, but it is a rom-com. No, no, Money Pit is uh, Sally, or not Sally Field. um, It's Tom Hanks and uh, Shelley Long. Oh, that one. I'm I think I'm getting confused because the house sitter also revolves around a house. So maybe that's why my wires are crossed. Uh, But yeah, I've heard about the money pit being a good movie. Yeah, if you've never seen it, um, it'll make you think twice about renovating an old house, which is what we've been doing for the last two years. (laughs) Sometimes art imitates life or life imitates art. Now, you know, normally Brett would pick a horror movie for a theme and I'd pick a rom-com, but today we've invited Tony onto the podcast with a movie of his own, and you picked the film Creature, directed by William Malone. Um, What inspired that choice? I, you know, I kind of put that post out a month or so ago about just getting on a couple of podcasts. I did a lot of podcasts 
years, you know, a couple years ago when um, I had a movie High in the Hog that I directed get released in 2019. And then I had two movies in 2018 come out, Skeletons in the Closet and The Rake. And so around that time, I just did tons of podcasts. And I really love getting on a show, talking about things that, you know, obviously I love doing and um, that I love watching and experiencing with other people that enjoy the same. And so uh, I kind of miss that. COVID kind of took me away from that for a couple of years. And so you guys answered the call. And uh, at the time I had been thinking, you know, it'd be really interesting to kind of do a little bit of a breakdown of um, one of my favorite movies of all time is Alien. The original was Sigourney Weaver and Tom Skerritt and Ridley Scott's one of my favorite directors, at least his older stuff. And so I really thought it was interesting how many ripoff movies came out after Alien was released. Uh, and Creature is arguably one of my favorites uh, of the ripoff films. And, and you can include a lot of movies in there. You can include Leviathan, which is probably bigger budget of all the ripoff movies forbidden planet was one we watched for this podcast that brett actually chose so i you know it it wasn't necessarily of my own will but i have gotten to learn a lot more about space horror through brett and this podcast than i think i otherwise would choose was it forbidden planet or forbidden world Oh, forbidden world that's what i meant to say Mm -hmm. Uh, I get them mixed up. The Corman, the Corman movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's, that's my point is that like when you had said that you had watched forbidden world, I was like, okay, if she sat through forbidden world, (laughs) she's clearly willing to watch creature. um, Nobody still have a tolerance to talk to me. after the fact. At least in this movie, there wasn't a gratuitous shower scene where they're petting each other's hair. I, there was only (laughs) one, soft focus sex scene so i i would definitely say that you are correct that creature is i i don't know what it, what adjective i would use but it's less less extreme or it, it's not doing as many totally bizarre like i i don't know how they're motivated scenes like forbidden world kind of throws in there uh it feels like creatures a little more straightforward well, I think Forbidden World, so that that film, just a tidbit that I know about that movie is, uh, you know, because I'm a huge Roger Corman fan. I think that he is one of those filmmakers that just really understands or understood because he's like 96 now, so he doesn't make movies anymore. <laughs> but even his kids now do it and they just understand what it is to make content. And as long as you have content constantly being produced, you're going to create a a reputation for yourself and people are going to want to get that content from you. And I, I just really, I respected the fact that in the, especially in the seventies and eighties, Roger Corman's company, like new world and and horizon, I think, or new horizon, they were just constantly pumping stuff out. And so they, and I believe it was 1980 made their first alien ripoff, which was called galaxy of terror that stars a very young Robert Englund prior to him being Freddy Krueger. Uh, one of my friends, the late great Sid Haig, was in that movie, um, along with Aaron Moran, who was uh, Joni from uh, Happy Days, which is a really weird role for her. And after that movie was done, 
a filmmaker who was in the Roger Corman family basically went up to Corman and said, Hey, you know, you've still got all these really cool sets from galaxy of terror. Can I shoot a movie on them? And here's this idea for forbidden world. And Roger Corman was like, sure. Hell yeah, go for it. And I think he gave him literally like 50 grand or something like that. And he went and he made this movie with those leftover locations. And so I, I know that Roger Corman's stuff traditionally fit into that drive-in type of, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, violence, that type of dynamic for a movie. So it makes sense that Forbidden World would have that. But I feel like William Malone, who I'd like to think was, is trying to be a little more of a serious horror filmmaker. He did the remake to House on Haunted Hill. He did that movie Fear.com back in the 90s, which wasn't that good of a movie, but had pretty great atmosphere and, and production design in it which I think are staples of, of a quality filmmaker um, who puts effort into their work. And so I think that in Creature, he, you could tell that he was trying to pay homage to Alien without blatantly ripping it off as much as possible, but also working with the low budget that he had access to, you know, and, and that's pretty apparent with like the monster and, and all that stuff. And, and those sex scenes are thrown in there because they have to be. I mean, how uncomfortable was that scene where the, the like security guard lady is like getting undressed before the the Kinski is that Klaus Kinski? Oh yeah, like, um, attempts to rape the, her. The love child of BB Newworth and Klaus Nomi. <laughs> <laughs> I I am all in on Melanie Bryce. Yes, that was completely weird and out of place. Getting sexually assaulted by Klaus Kinski definitely not on her list of things she wanted to do that day. <laughs> uh, but you know, you said something interesting about how um, Alien is is a big movie for you, and you love Alien and all its derivatives. And I would say, Brett, you're pretty much the same way, right? Oh yeah, I mean. I mean, based on the movies you've chosen for this podcast, I, I feel very confident in that. <laughs> yeah, the whole knockoff, the whole horror knockoff genre is, it's a time-honored tradition. Like, you know you've made it when you've spawned a whole, you know, dozens or hundreds worth of, of movies that go like, yeah, you get it. It's alien, but this. Or yeah. it's alien, but uh, on a much less, uh, much lower budget. So I mean, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, like, like look at look at campground slashers. The fact that kids don't even really go to summer camp anymore, as far as I know, uh, <laughs> it's like the fact that they still make campground slasher films blows my mind because kids nowadays don't even know what summer camp is, you know? Oh yeah, no, it's all, it's all based on sort of, I guess this continuing conversation with that subgenre of movies. I mean, really that's what a genre is. It's, it's a conversation that just goes on and on and on about the, the same topic. And, you know, as a rom-com fan looking at these movies, I'm trying to think in my mind, okay, what is the rom-com version of this? What do we keep going back to over and over again? And I think that the rom-com alien might be Clueless, Amy Heckerling's Clueless. People saw that movie and they thought, I can turn any classic piece of literature, because it's Jane Austen's Emma, into a teenage romantic comedy. You, Ten Things... Taming of the Shrew, She's the Man, uh, was Twelfth Night, and on and on and on. We've we've basically seen just, you know, 
an adaptation, modern adaptations on modern adaptations of Shakespeare and Jane Austen in particular uh, for romance. And I don't know, we never really get tired of it either. I think that's something that's interesting and unique to me about being a genre fan versus somebody who's like, I only watch, you know, prestige or like, I want to watch Tarkovsky's Andre Rublev or something, or, um, you know, Ingmar Bergman's Seven Seal. I am perfectly comfortable watching a derivative movie or a movie that's going to pay homage or wink at things um, before. That's not to say that I don't think that Creature also has in it within some, I don't know, more artistic references like Solaris. I think your dead girlfriend showing up in space is very Solaris. Uh, But... uh, yeah, I, I find that, do you find that interesting at all? That like, as a fan of horror, that you really aren't that uncomfortable when it comes to copying or seeing the same thing in a different way? Well, I think that that just reverts back to the fact that there are, what do they say, seven core stories right. and everything is a derivative of that core uh, seven stories. And so, you know, I, I think that that's why, and, and I also think that Hollywood for all intents and purposes is rather un uncreative when it comes to stuff. You know, I think that there are a lot of films that are really great and, and have a lot of creativity behind them. But then there's also other stories that you can tell it was just a group of people saying, look, we've got this money. Let's make a movie because we're going to make money off of that movie. And unfortunately the horror genre in particular is chock full of producers that say horror movies make money. So let's just, and horror fans will watch anything because generally speaking, we will look at creature. It's not this a very is good true movie. for romance fans as well. They, they right. have us, they have us all by the balls at this point. Yes, <laughs> you're right. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, being, being a fan of something and wanting to just devour as much of that content as possible is, is perfectly acceptable. And I think that's how most people nowadays escape from you know general day-to-day life and uh so to me it makes perfect sense and and like brett said i actually enjoy a lot of the derivative stuff because to me i don't look at it and say oh well this is just an alien ripoff and i like aliens so why am i going to watch this movie when it's the same thing i look at it more as being a fan of 80s movies and creature Mm -hmm. in particular as I commented on William Malone's ability to direct good production design and create atmosphere, you know, if you've seen the the remake to House on Haunted Hill or if you saw Fear.com, there's some really solid moments in those films that show that he has an understanding of visual storytelling. And I think that Creature showcases some of the best in terms of the alien ripoffs of, you know, the set design's not the best. It's really not good at all. But what I love about it is the lighting. I think the tones, all the blue tones in that movie, and then there's like pops of pink. It's very neo, like neon noir in a lot of ways. You could tell that it was very heavily influenced because it was made in 85. So it's very heavily influenced with that early to mid 80s kind of like we're going to throw neon at everything and just soak it in that, like to live and die right, in LA. Yeah. And, you know, so Give it a blade runner spin. hundred percent, hundred percent. And so that's what I, I really do appreciate about that. 
And, and as a horror fan, I'm willing to digest as much of that. I would prefer to be watching it with a friend and having a couple of drinks and having fun looking at it and making fun of it. But um, something like Creatures kind of, it's one of those guilty pleasure kind of like fall asleep movies. Um, I actually said that to my wife when we were watching it last night because she's like, what is this now? And I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's an alien ripoff. We're watching it for this podcast. And I said... And she's, I'm like, but we can watch it and we can bullshit because I have seen it a hundred times until the end. I always fall asleep at the end because I put it on late at night when I'm just wanting to put on something quietly in the background and pass out to. And so I have a couple of those. Hell Night is another one that I will put on in the background and just fall asleep to. Black Christmas is a good example of that. In the winter time, that's a great one to fall asleep to. I don't know why. <laughs> You're not unsettled it, by all the creepy phone calls and voices. Uh, <laughs> I, no, you turn it down, and it's <laughs> it's a darker movie, and it's soft. Like the the film quality of it is very soft. So I don't know. I just I, I don't really understand it either. But they're just movies that I I consider good fall asleep movies. So. I could see that. You could probably you could probably make a whole channel out of uh, Black Christmas, like good night ASMR type videos. <laughs> ASMR horror. I like yeah. it. I think that's an angle that has yet to be really explored. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the 80s aesthetic because another movie that we've watched for the podcast that this reminded me a little bit of is uh, Brett. Your pick, Split Second, uh, with. Um, Rugger Hauer. Yes, thank you. Uh, and, you know, even though that isn't in space, you're still kind of dealing with this faceless monster in this neo-noir city. You know, I, I like I like the idea of this is kind of the anti-Kubrick future where nothing is clean. Everything's kind of dirty and dingy and nothing really works you know, versus being entirely sanitized and pure and white. Um, it, it feels a little bit more gritty. So yeah, maybe maybe the set design isn't as expensive or intricate. Um, but I think for this specific aesthetic that you're talking about, it works really well. Uh, so shall we get into the story of the movie? Sure, go for it. All right. So... I, have a, I have a quick question. When, okay. when your wife came in and was like, what movie is this? And you said creature. I'm watching it for the podcast. Did she say, Oh, they're making you watch it. And you had to say, no, I'm, I'm the one who picked it. No, why? Oh no, no, no. So I like, I get four nights off each week and then I work four overnights each week. And so on my four nights off, we try and get at the end of the night, we try and get settled into the couch and just, you know, snuggle and watch a movie or Ozark or something. Mm -hmm. and half the time it's a crappy movie that I've put on. And so my wife ends up sitting on her phone looking for stuff for the house or surfing Insta stories. And so it was one of those dynamics where it was like, okay, do you either want to watch an episode of Ozark and try and finish that up and you can pay attention or do you want me to put on something that I have to watch for this podcast that I picked and we can talk during the first half of it and whatever, hang out. And then at the end of it, I have to pay attention because I've only seen the end once or twice and I want to <laughs> remember, you know, kind of what happens. Um, so, no, I she's she's more than used to dealing with the fact that I'm probably going to put on a bad horror movie unless we have a show or something that we have to catch up on. So 
Actually, Sonia and I kind of do the same thing. Sometimes I'll be like, I'm watching this. And if you want to be here while I'm watching it, that's fine. You don't actually have to watch it. But one of my favorite things is when Sonia's like, eh, I'm just going to like goof around on my phone. I'll leave 15 minutes into the movie. But then by the end of the movie, she's sucked in yeah. to the movie. Um, yeah. My wife isn't like that. She's no. typically, she typically falls asleep. She's one of those people who's <laughs> able to like pass out after like 10 seconds. And so... I'll be watching it and she'll just get to that point where she's comfortable and tired and just falls asleep. And since she only gets me half of the week at night, you know, she likes to get comfortable and cozy with me and, um, which is great. You know, it's like, there's, yeah, there's, well, we've been together for almost four years now and there's like that, there's, that's still, we still have that dynamic of infatuation where we always want to be around each other, which is awesome. And, you know, we're, we're best friends. So it's like, we have that, that desire to constantly be hanging out with each other and my overnight shifts, I'm sleeping during the day. So it's like those four days, we really don't see each other at all. Um, and so it it really creates crappy dynamic to, (laughs) to, to our life on a weekly basis. But at the same time on my four days off, where it's just like, all right, let's get stuff done around the house. Let's hang out and and let's try and spend as much time together as we can. And so it's kind of cool in that regard. That's really wholesome. I I like that a lot. I I would say that that Doug is more like your wife and that he'll he'll see what I'm watching and then decide or um sometimes he'll have a moment of confusion where he'll be like, "Did Brett make you pick this?" and I'll say, "No, actually, I I'm making him watch this one." Or this is the horror. No, this is the rom-com. He's he's not always clear on on what's what. Um but if it's something that's really wacky, then he'll he'll settle in for a scene. Like I think um, when we watched um, uh, what's the Vincent Price movie that you made me watch? I ended up loving it. It's uh, Doctor Fives. Yeah, yeah, Doctor um, Fives. Yeah, Doctor Fives. I think his comment was like, "This movie is insane. <laughs> this movie." Yeah, that's the the reasonable reaction to that movie. (laughs) Yeah, he had completely reasonable reactions to everything that went on in that movie. And I definitely called him in a few times like, you should see this scene. (laughs) Someone's about to get impaled by a unicorn. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, highly. Yeah, I think that that being a casual observer to podcast homework can can definitely be interesting for (laughs) each of our partners in their own way did either of your significant others watch creature with you uh no not this time i yeah i i'm not sure uh how how doug would feel about creature um i think he'd be more of a split second guy but uh yeah yeah, no, I, I, there are definitely things that, that I enjoyed about Creature watching it. And I feel like I, I was prepared for Creature. Like you came to the podcast at the right time, Tony, where I've, I've had enough of a space horror education that I can start to see the tropes. That's why I said that we should watch it. If you had not mentioned Forbidden World, I never would have even suggested it because I didn't want you to think I was a total weirdo and you've never <laughs> even met me before. Now and I, I already seen Brett know. In 12 years. So, so yeah, yeah I, I was fully aware that you were a weirdo before I agreed to come <laughs> onto this podcast with you. 
so so getting getting into the movie, we begin with two researchers. I, I like that in a movie, like whether it's space or a crypt or a basement or an attic, sometimes it's just two dudes about to unleash hell onto Earth. Uh, and so we we have two guys um, from the American multinational corporation and an NTI. I do feel like the future, it's always either some kind of futuristic monarchy or corporatocracy. There are no options in between. And, and we, we find ourselves in a corporatocracy future. But with the presence of a West German company, I was expecting maybe more space communists uh, than we got. Because, I mean, there had to be an East Germany, too, right, if, if they went into the future. But we we don't hear anything about that. So actually, now that I've dipped my toes into Gundam, this feels very Gundam. Uh, Gundam really? is all about like, what if we went into space, but we were just all like greedy colonists <laughs> and um, corporations? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it makes sense that it, that it's a corporatocracy, like you're saying, because to me, that seems to be the way that things are going. You know, I mean, there are still governmental structures, but ultimately you get enough people that are richer than governments and who yeah. knows what the world's going to be like, you know, or space is going to be like. So it's just going to be Amazon, the Bezos, the Bezos empire. Uh, so in a lab, we have an egg-like container. I, I don't think it, it's more like a capsule, like it's a giant coffin and it is keeping this alien creature alive, but we don't know that. I, I liked this initial scene. What did you guys think of this when he's like, no, I need you to sit on it for perspective. Like he couldn't line up a wrench next to the, (laughs) next to the thing. He's like, no, sit on it. Well, I, I think it's funny that he's that he's so persistent about it and he mm-hmm. doesn't say, like, I want you to come over here for scale. He's like, would you come over here? Would you come over here? Come over here. <laughs> it's like he's not a five-year-old. Quit yelling at him, you know. And then, yeah, I, I agree. The whole, the whole reasoning is silly. Even the location to me is kind of weird because it looks like they're in this, like, cavern with all these tubes. Right. And everybody says, it's a lab. How do you know it's a lab? Where did you come to that conclusion? I'm just you know? learning that. I, I thought that it was a crash site on Titan or something like that. Wikipedia is clarifying things that I didn't necessarily know. But I, I was content to believe, okay, this is like a crash site or this is an area that they're investigating because they're saying that things are a thousand years old. Uh, but yeah, I really liked the, you know, first he cracks the coffin with his flashlight and then he's like, okay, now I want you to sit on it for scale. It's very comical. I don't know. I was expecting perhaps a little bit more hijinks because my only exposure to William Malone prior to this was, um, house on haunted Hill. Uh, because I don't know, I, I, I remember that movie having kind of a little bit of a sense of fun, you know, cause Jeffrey Rush is playing this Vincent Price esque, you know, eccentric billionaire. Uh, and it, it had a lot of, you know, different faces from the nineties thousands that, um, you know, had more range. So I, I was maybe expecting a little bit more hijinks, but the opening scene was kind of, the the highest we get as far as humor, I feel like in the movie. 
Yeah, except for that whole sequence where the two guys are going to try and, like, get the creature to get distracted so they can save the lady from the burbs. (laughs) And it's like, you're just, like, you're just assuming that this creature is keeping her there hanging upside down for the purposes of, like, trying to draw you in and kill you. What if it goes and eats her in the next five seconds while you're trying to find another way into this room? Why don't you just go in there guns blazing and try and save the girl? Makes no sense whatsoever. That's way too simple, Tony. Uh, So we get our first two kills, and then that ship, I think, crashes into a station, right? Because they're dead, and they've been taken over by the creature. So NTI dispatches a new ship, the Shenandoah, to Titan, and its crew. We've got Captain Mike Davison, Susan Delambra, John Fennell, Dr. Wendy Oliver, David Perkins, Beth Sladen, and then uh, the security officer, my girl, Melanie Bryce. Uh, And, you know, they, I do like that men and women are kind of equally represented here as far as competencies. Uh, One of the things that I appreciated about Ghosts of Mars when we watched that movie was that you know, there are a lot of women and, you know, powerful, competent roles as far as um, gender equality. We can imagine a future <laughs> where men and women are equally competent. Uh, and, you know, in the end, you know, Slayton really comes through as far as helping defeat the monster. So we we get introduced to our crew. Um, but I don't know. I was there anybody who really stood out to you as having like a, a personality or like a character? You're like, I'm rooting for this one. Or do we well, just want I, them to die? I mean, I, I really like the lady from the burbs because I'm a big fan of the burbs. And so when I saw this movie for the first time, who's the, the, which character yeah. is she? She's the one who survives at the end. She's the one who makes it all the way. She oh, Sladen. She's the final girl. Yeah, she plays Bruce Stern's wife in The Burbs. Oh. Uh, and so when I saw her, I was like, where do I know her from? And then I did the IMDb research, discovered that she was the lady from The Burbs. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I, that's amazing. Like, I love that this is her. I think it's four years prior to The Burbs coming out. And so it's just neat to see, you know, these younger actors in these roles that once they're established in their careers, they're probably, you know, uh, very embarrassed by. And, um, and so this is probably one of those movies in her case, even though I don't know what else she's been in besides the burbs, but I really like her a lot. Um, I like that they made her kind of like the, she's very Ellen Ripley. She's like the, the engineer of the group, you know, she's the one who has the, the, the intelligence behind the way that the ship runs. And so she knows how to, you know, work with the communications equipment and and rewire systems and stuff to get power to certain things. And even though she clearly didn't, in my opinion, she didn't do a very good job of acting like she was fixing things. You know, she's like looking at the end of it to make sure. It was kind of adorable the way she was messing with those wires. I, I loved it, but I also felt similar to you. You know, I said that this movie didn't have a lot of humor, but I, I allow me the, the space to correct myself and say that I do find it funny that Sladen ultimately rises into the Ripley role when you've kind of got the red herring of Melanie Bryce there, she seems like she's going to be the Ripley, but it doesn't exactly turn out that way. 
Um, yeah. And she was an interesting character because she just disappears. And you have yeah. no idea what happened to her. And then she just comes back at the end and, you know. Surprise! You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she, and that's like, so hilarious. Like, and I where love were she, you? Well, we were all in danger that whole time, right, guys? Right, right. There and it's like, no she knew, it's like she knew what was happening the entire time she was gone, even though she wasn't there at any point in time communicating right. with anybody. She like even walks in with like the catchphrase, even though she has no idea what's going on. And I thought that was really funny. Yeah, no, I I did I did really really like that and and find that to be funny in its own way. Uh, you know, Brett, I feel like in a space horror movie, you immediately gravitate towards the Loomis, the the crazy doctor. Um, uh, but the, this movie was kind of absent crazy doctors. So so I I'm curious for you, who is the person that you latched onto? Uh, I really liked the captain at the beginning. I liked when he was very yeah, captain matter. Mike. Of, yeah, he was very matter of fact about the safety of landing on the on the moon. Um, but oh, he's the procedure guy. It makes so much sense yeah. now. You you love yourself a procedure guy. <laughs> but also, I do think this movie is funny for the first half of the movie. Like, there's some pretty good just low-key good dialogue in terms of like you know when the lady's giving him shit about like oh to be a good captain you just need a good strong voice or when the captain i did like, like when she was giving him shit yeah. about that or the captain's like you know your authority on this ship is extremely limited now like there's some good moments in the first half um I, I thought it did a pretty good job of going like, you know, alien, but uh, a little bit different. But yeah, no, they're having kind of a casual Friday at the office when the distress call comes in from the West German company, Richter Dynamics, and they have to decide, you know, whether or not they're going to answer the call. And if they had, you know, the movie that Slade and watched that inspires her later, unfortunately, was not Alien or another space horror movie, or she would have known, you know, let's let's get away from here. You never answered the distress call, but because it's a movie, they, they've got to go forward. They've got to answer the call to uh, this adventure. Uh, so they go to the ship. Uh, they find the container and the dead bodies. Uh, and then the creature appears and kills Delambra. And, you know, I'm happy that she got to have a nice soft focus sex scene with Fennel before she met her untimely demise. Uh, but yeah, she's our, our first member of the crew to, to get killed. And, you know, it makes sense. Cause she's the one who's like, you know, she's like chunk in the Goonies. She's like, I don't know about this guy's. Maybe we shouldn't go. And so she's got to go, right? Well, she had to, she only had a couple of days to be on set because she probably had to be in a punk rock video or something. Oh, really? Is that, is that what that is? Oh, I, oh. just the hair. Her, her hair to me is so mid 80s punk. I love it. I absolutely love it. She's very Amy Mann, you know, absolutely love it. Yes, uh, she, she could be at home in a Riot Girl band easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I also yeah. like how they just they 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 address it right at the beginning. She has this almost like paranormal sense of like 
oh guys i'm fucked <laughs> i mean we all are but me specifically too i really like her death scene i the only thing i don't like is i don't think that they needed to show her body getting dragged away after she was killed but her when like not only is the tension incredible because at that point in the movie you don't see how lumbering and slow the monster is but like all you see is this this pre-predator predator kind of vision from the monster pursuing oh, yeah. these people yeah the heat vision like pursuing these people down this corridor she's last in line which is funny to me because it's like you know women and children first right nope not in this movie because like three of the women die first in this movie which is crazy to me because i always thought the same that you were saying shira where i feel like these women in this film were almost given more of the commanding positions in this you know the right. doctor for example Security. even though she admits to that guy she's like i'm not really a doctor i'm actually like a yeah you know but but yeah the security and and everything and so but but that moment where it's like they're all being pursued by this unseen creature that the audience has no idea what it looks like or how fast it moves and then that door's closing and the three of them get out and she's stuck as the door closes and i'm just like man that that would be terrifying because what do you do she doesn't have a weapon she has nothing and and then all of a sudden the blood sprays against the window and and if they would have left it at that i would have been like cool because that's very much like predator when shane black gets killed as the first kill in predator he gets just blood sprays and that's the end of it. And you don't know what happened to him. You're like, man, he must've gotten effed up, you know? Um, but yeah, she, she gets it. All right. She, she definitely gets it first. And it's too bad because she had that, that tender moment with her boyfriend and in the, the little moon window. And, <laughs> and then, uh, and then she gets it and then he's, and he's probably the worst actor in the movie. And, <laughs> yes. Unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really okay, guys. I'm perfectly, <laughs> yeah. I'm perfectly fine. I just, I, I hurt my neck, but yeah. I'm okay, guys. Um, yeah, but also, uh, excuse me, Mister Watch. When I sent out my little joke email about clicking my <laughs> link, because there's plenty of oxygen over here, you would have been dead yeah. right away. Yeah, I didn't. Well, I didn't know. I mean, I don't know if you guys had to change your your casting up or whatever, but yeah, there's plenty of oxygen over here. Come on over, guys. How come we're all sweating and heat is not dropping a bead of sweat at all? That's what causes you to determine there's something wrong. Mm. There's no flop sweat. sweat. Yeah. 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 You know, and and despite his, his limited abilities, Fennell gets his moment in the spotlight because he just loses it. Bryce has to sedate him. They return back to their own ship. Uh, And then this is where we get the scene where Klaus Kinski (laughs) comes up behind Klaus Nomi. uh, And then he, you know, speaking of Blade Runner hair, she does kind of have like the Sean Young Blade Runner haircut. I don't know if that was intentional um but yeah he he comes up behind her and immediately acts like the most european man i've ever met uh and and she you know turns her gun on him but we've got um i love this character in space horror movies but you know the guy who's able to testify as to what happened to the crew before he's you know the npc that gives you the quest for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. I just, 
it bothers me that like they set him up as this complete goon where he's like molesting her, which I, I guess in the eighties that was like, I mean that it does, that's never acceptable. So it makes Again, no sense to me. Very eighties, very European. It, yes. But, but even still like a man is not supposed to just go up and do that to a woman. And then two seconds later, after she beats the crap out of him, which I thought was awesome. Then it's like he's walking around the control room of their ship like, well, guys, I know exactly what happened and I'm going to help you take care of it. And they're like, no, you're going to be tied up to a freaking chair in this room because you are clearly a threat to us and we should probably lock you up tight. But no, they're just like, no, we're going to we're going to listen to this guy. We're not even going to. Well, hold on a minute. Just because he's a rapist doesn't mean he doesn't have good information. <laughs> well, he, he's kind of like that crazy guy in um, Friday the 13th. Like he can yell at the top of his lungs about how everybody's going to die. But people are like, ah, him? He's just a guy about town. Don't listen to him. <laughs> yeah, he's just a drunk. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he he does give them the... the um, the solution. I was about to say the final solution, and it just felt very wrong. Um, but, but he's like, you got to go back to the ship and get the explosives. But they're like, eh, uh, exactly like you say. So at this point, Fennell gets a vision or something. He gets called um, by undead Delambre uh, through the porthole and follows her. So he gets he gets Solarist by the creature. Uh, and then she strips naked, beautiful. Uh, and then as he's just dumbfounded, she takes off his helmet and then it, it looks like a face hugger, but it's like just kind of the suggestion, right? Of a face hugger that she plants on him. Uh, and then he wraps that up in a, a Van Gogh bandage. So I, I don't know why anybody would trust Fennel when he comes back looking like he just cut his own ear off. Uh, but nobody kind of reacts to it like it's anything that crazy. Just like, oh, where were you? Well, he is still a human being talking to them, and he knows their names and has the information about them. So I don't think there's any reason to assume that that there's anything wrong with him, especially since they did hop him up with drugs to, to calm him down after her death. But just the fact that he's like, Oh yeah, the monster must have ran out of the out of the spaceship. Like it's not here anymore. And I checked the Wee. entire spaceship. Did you? Did you really? And you're all calm and everything. And there's plenty of oxygen and you know all that. It's just terribly, terribly hokey and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But uh, I don't know. I will say, up until this point, I feel like the director William Malone kind of had like a really good grasp on the movie it felt very well storyboarded it felt like everything was being communicated clearly to me i knew who everyone was i knew what was going on it was smooth this this movie was running very smoothly but once we start to hit this moment in the movie like it just goes off the rails like it becomes about 20 different things at once and it's all discombobulated and none of the scenes like feel like they have a beginning middle end and it just becomes like eh, which also kind of fits with low budget filmmaking <laughs> at a certain point once all the like they put all their money into these cool effects 
at this point on, I just start writing kills in my notes in all capitals. Like, <laughs> holy shit, this was awesome. But it just, the whole movie just kind of goes, whoo. Well, and you have to really wonder how much, um, how much control was being put on the, uh, on the filmmakers by right. the, by the producers and the people who were putting the money in, you know, I can, I can safely say firsthand experience on some of the stuff I've done that if you're not the person with the money, you don't control the final product of the film. And so sometimes, you know, you have people come in and say, Oh, well, I really think we need this or we need to add this. And you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I know, I know it doesn't really make sense, but you know, put it in there anyway, find a way to squeeze it in there because I think it'd be really cool. Like a giant mechanical spider. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yes. And I think that they like, I feel like they, they, they looked at this and they said, okay, we're doing an alien ripoff blatantly obvious, but let's take elements of Blade Runner. Let's take elements of John Carpenter's The Thing, which even though it's not at that time, it was not revered as like this really great film. It, it bombed in the box office, but wow, that John is Carpenter's, so surprising to me. Cause I yeah. love the thing. John Carpenter's The Thing was, was a box office bomb in the eighties in 1982 and it ended up and he got really panned for it, but then it ended up garnering this cult audience after the fact, which is crazy because it's such a good movie. Yeah. Um, and it, this movie even took moments from the original thing from another world. If you know, like when they electrocute the creature at the end is, is the identical scene from that film. Um, and so I think that th- there's something to be said for, for trying to embody so many different films that you consider good that you're paying homage to and then muddling up your own story because you're spreading yourself too thin by trying to hit all these other, you know, homages. Well, you see, that's kind of what I like about a movie like this one. For me, the worst thing that a movie can be is boring. So I would rather have a movie like Creature that's going to, you know, spin out in all of the descriptive sounds that Brett just made, if it means that it's going to give me something that's interesting or surprising, or, you know, maybe it doesn't work from a narrative sense, but am I enjoying watching it? Am I, am I getting thrills from the kills? Uh, Then, you know, I feel like a movie has fulfilled its purpose for me. It's not, it's not boring even if it might not be at, I don't know, the same level as something with a higher budget or, you know, clear storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this film, what I like about it is that it contains all of the, the elements that make an eighties horror film, in my opinion, good. It's got some pretty cool death scenes. I mean, albeit they're, they're hokey and cheesy and the practical effects aren't the best, but you know what, for 1985, decapitations and and a monster a full body monster suit is still something to to be um to be excited about in a in a movie and so i think that there was a lot of really cool lots of blood spraying in this movie which i think is great and that red of the blood they did a really good job of coloring that against the blues and all the other tones in the movie because overall it's a very cold looking movie and then you get those pops, like I said, of the pink through the the porthole and during the lovemaking scene. And, and then you've got, you know, all the red of the blood. And I think that that really calls a lot of attention to 
those things that we're supposed to be focusing on the blood the sex you know which is again what makes an 80s horror movie an 80s horror movie um and i've been talking about that a lot on the last couple podcasts i've been on just how 80s horror films have that and and i don't know if that is derivative of kind of their evolution from 70s horror films which were also more of the grindhouse kind of drive-in style where it is mostly sex and violence you know um but i think that that's what i like about this movie is that it's got the elements that make the 80s horror movies that i enjoy um you know it's got lots of great violence and good special effects practical effects no cgi obviously right it's got that stuff but then the, the stuff that I do think is cool is, again, like I've commented before, just the production design and the lighting. I, I don't think, again, that the set design is the best, and I don't think the cinematography is anything to write home about. But the production design and the lighting of this film are, are really, um, for a lower-budget movie, are pretty top-notch. And so um, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I know I know that it's not the best movie, and, and again, you had to watch Forbidden World, which is... <laughs> Probably five times worse than this one. So I figured given yeah. that experience. I mean, yeah, there were no kooky doctors handling bodies without gloves or didn't he taste the specimen in Forbidden World too? Well, um, I almost feel like that was a little bit of that kind of like telepathic influence. The creature has like that, uh, like pheromones or something, you know? Oh, yeah. I feel like that's kind of what forbidden because isn't forbidden world. Like, isn't that what it's all about is like that sex is supposed to be like, you know, it, it like not only are the people, I mean, cause like look at the guy in forbidden world. He's one of the least attractive leading men I've ever seen in a movie ever. And yet he's like hooking up with every single everyone. On that oh show. my God. That was yeah. so frustrating. I, I definitely think that the men, the men of a uh, creature are more highly evolved so, so like we're saying, we we get we get kill after kill until we get to the the final showdown between Sladen, Davison, and Perkins with the monster. Um, are there any particular kills you want to talk about, or um, should we just move right into talking about the big finale? Uh, well, I loved in Poltergeist the face rip when the guy rips off his own oh, face. We so got a good movie. We got a great face rip in this movie. Just after like Wendy had her moment. One of the first things they do once they encounter the zombie brain bug people is just mutilate them. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, yep, nope, this is, this is a person, but it's clearly a brain bug person. Um, always a fan of the head explosion. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, we got a great head explosion. A great head explosion. And then yeah, when the one guy rips the brain bug out of the other guy, like all of those were super solid kills. Um yeah, I mean if you're gonna go for it, go for it. And they did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's what I enjoy about it. I think yeah. it's got some pretty cool stuff in it. And you know, even even when Dr. Wendy gets her head bit off by the creature and the the clearly prosthetic plastic head falls to the ground that looks nothing like her it's still kind of cool and yeah. in the 80s Good i'm chomps. sure before they cleaned it all up it still totally works you know yeah i like i like the way that the monster took a chomp out of her he he, he cut her neck down like the 
tree trunk. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you, Brad. I like, I liked when she ripped his face off. Uh, and then, yeah, we get, we get the protracted struggle with Slayton against the monster after the plan to electrocute him fails. And, you know, I, I, because this is an 80s horror movie, maybe I wasn't as nervous as I, I feel watching a movie like The Conjuring, which has my anxiety on just high alert constantly. The one moment that really got me was when she was tapping the monster. <laughs> and it's like, why would you do that? Why would you go up and do that? Don't tap the creature. Um, and so, yeah, the movie, the movie ends with the monster getting to Perkins after he's gotten the German bomb. And then, uh, ultimately Davidson pushes the chute that I think launches them into space and he blows up the monster. And, uh, then we get the reappearance of Bryce who we didn't even like, we know Klaus Kinski, got uh monster fight or creature fight but she just got lost <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah. then they're like oh let's go home <laughs> yeah they're just like oh we're not we're not at all concerned that you might be secretly right possessed by the creature that's what either. i thought i thought they were gonna do a carry on us and we were gonna find out that she was possessed by the creature and you know maybe demon style or I think also Ghosts of Mars kind of has the same deal where it's like everybody's now going to get infected, but they they ended on a on a happy ending, which surprised me. Yeah, it's it's a lot more like summer school if you ever saw that Mark Harmon movie where the where the the um the football player like goes up to him and asks to use the bathroom on the first day of summer school, and then he comes in and takes the test at the end of the movie. And he's like, "Where have you been?" He's like, "Oh yeah, I remember you. Where have you been?" He's like, "I was in the bathroom." And he hands him back the bathroom pass, and he's like, "My zipper got stuck." He's like, "For six weeks," <laughs> and that's exactly what happens with Bryce. It's like yeah. she's gone, and you're like, "Wait a minute, did I just go to the bathroom when she died and I missed it?" Right. I don't that's remember. what I thought. I'm so ADD. I'm like, "Holy yeah. shit." How did the character that most interested me die? And I didn't notice, but she wasn't dead at all. She was just lost. I just wish I would have changed my name for the podcast. You guys have such creative names and I'm just Tony. (laughs) (laughs) What would your name be if you could do it all again? I'd have to think about it. I didn't realize I should have thought about it beforehand, and I would have. Oh, tried that's to come okay. I, I, I throw so many pop questions at Brett's way. I feel like every <laughs> other podcast, Brett, you tell me I should have prepared for this when I purposefully yeah, yeah, ask yeah. you a question that you haven't prepared for. <laughs> uh, no, we always catch our our ghoul friends off guard with our little our little names. I like them. I think they're great. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of pop questions, I got to ask, Tony, who did you have a crush on in this movie? Oh, you know, that's actually an interesting question because I, I think that, uh, so, so you're saying if this was a romantic comedy, which is the one I would want to go after? Well, huh? so to, to, put, <laughs> to put this into context, I should have done that first. Pretend that I did this first. Every time we have a podcast, if it's a rom-com, I will ask Brett, okay, who would you kill in the movie? 
okay. and then yeah. whenever we do a horror movie, uh, Brett asks me or we ask each other, oh, so who did you have a crush on in this film? And it it could be a romantic crush, like you really like the cut of their jib, or it could be a like, I just like their character, their acting, their whole vibe. Well, I, I really liked, obviously, um, what, whatever her name is in the movie, uh, the one who was in the Burbs, because to me, she was intelligent and she was, uh, she was assertive, which was great. Um, and she was also willing to go out there and do what she had to do to survive. You know, I, I don't want, I don't want a, a I'm not going to go after the character that's going to be, you know, just kind of the fodder, so to speak, which is how I felt the other two. Um, the other two females who got killed right off the bat were um, as much as they were both attractive in my opinion. And then Bryce to me, not, I don't really, I didn't really find her very attractive in that. Again, that whole scene where they show her undressing for no reason other than to make that was against your will, even more uncomfortable for her when Klaus Kinsey attacks her, attacks her. It's like, I was just like, you know, she's just now nah, I'm just not, not buying it at all. Just wasn't, I felt bad for her in that scene. She was very uncomfortable. Um, and you could tell that the actress was uncomfortable doing that. So what about you I, guys? I liked when Slayton, I loved her line delivery of this shit's written in German. <laughs> that was a great moment. Of course it's written in German. Yeah, of course it is. But she also, she knows machines. She's able to figure it out. Like, at the end of the day, it's all the same. Like, oh, this yeah. button activates this. This button does something. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say my crush, and I've been I've been secretly waiting to, to, to throw this theory out at you guys. My crush is Bryce. And here's, hear me out. Bryce... I'm is listening. the android of the group. Okay? Here's here's three good three good reasons why. One, she does not say a single word until she makes visual contact with the creature. That seems like something a corporation would do, right? It's like put a limit on the android. Like we don't need the android talking to people. Just let her hang out creepily, but once the creature comes, now the security officer has to take over cuz we want to get the creature. Two, when Klaus Kinski gropes her, and I'm not making any excuses or saying it's okay, but she doesn't, like, react back. And the first rule of robotics is the robots can't harm people. So she cannot, even though he's groping her left and right. Right, you do realize that freezing is react. a trauma response, too. But I, but it also, if you take a look at the robot angle, I'm just saying, Klaus Kinsey goes like in her. like, hey, like this robot. is a doll who is not allowed to attack me back, so I'm going to take full advantage of that. It's an interesting and the third, idea. third reason is at the end of the movie, what does she do? She gets that lady's book back to her. One of the great themes about robotics is sometimes robots can be more human than us humans. And she does like a human gesture of going back for the book and going out of her way to get the book. So I don't know. I think somewhere in a the draft there, Bryce was an android because that would be perfect with alien knockoffs. So she didn't she didn't get lost. She just was recharging for like a day and a half <laughs> while they were getting attacked by this monster. Yeah, she had. She, I mean, she's got all this new information to process. She's got to do updates. She's got to. Yeah. I She's like busy. it. 
It's a great theory. Yeah, I feel like both of you have made very compelling cases for my two favorite women in the film. I I do come down more on the Bryce side because I was I was hoping so much to see her potential, but then you know she wears Waldoed in the middle of the movie, and we never really saw her until the end, so we don't know. But I I like that you know similar to. Um, the the lead lady in Ghosts of Mars, she has a drug problem. So she's, you know, she's stealing or taking drugs from the doctor. Um, she does have some respect for Slayton because she's the only one who bothered to remember what her first name is, Melanie. Uh, and, and yeah, like, I don't know. I would definitely be down to see the continuing adventures of uh, Slayton and Bryce, like as a Cagney and Lacey space team up. Uh, I didn't do that as my remix, but now I kind of regret it. Um, but yeah, I would say that my primary crush is Bryce with Slayton at a close second. So uh, I also, th- one more thing that I have three points of is, <laughs> you know who I think, you know who I think is got to be a fan of this movie? Steven Spielberg. Because Slayton, at the end of the movie, her outfit is 100% Laura Dern in Jurassic Park. Mm. She's got the khaki shorts. She's got this blue button-up thing. Like, it's blue and khaki. She is a clever girl. running around. And, yeah. And then, guy says, hold on to your hats. At At two points in the movie, he says, hold on to your hats. Very much like hold on to your butts. And Tony, you were saying the the first um, the first intro scene of the movie, the opening scene, it's the the set design is very minimalistic, to put it kindly. It's um, it's a lot of crazy lighting. It's a lot of close ups. They they just kind of hide the fact the geography of the thing. And honestly, if you look at Jurassic Park, the opening scene of that movie feels like it was shot on a soundstage there's no background to it it's all backlit and there's crazy shadows and uh a lot of it is done in close-ups and so like yeah they they use their low budget kind of sensibilities to uh to work around that and the opening of Jurassic Park is you know a much better sequence but it's kind of the same in terms of using film film tricks it's interesting to me that like when I started watching the film last night, I was surprised that with with these locations, why do not why do more of these films not just go out into the middle of the desert and shoot at night in the desert? You know, like take a, a kind of rogue film crew and just go out, set up some generators and, and create an atmosphere of a, a planet in the middle of nowhere by doing that because then at least you have a little more of an expanse and you can kind of work a little bit more with what's around you as opposed to having to create this claustrophobic, you know, um, location by, by utilizing whatever it is they were shooting in a warehouse or a studio or something. Cause like the great thing about alien is that Rip Ridley Scott did an incredible job of creating a large expanse with this universe, not only with the, um, a lot of the, the plates that they were painting on the frames of film to create these, these big, you know, uh, establishing shots. But then you also have the, um, moments where, and I don't know how much you guys know about alien, but like when the, 
people are first leaving the ship to go and find the alien spaceship. There's like shots of them taking this elevator down from the spaceship to the, like the legs that are on the ground of the planet. And they actually used children in spacesuits or midgets. I forgot which it was. Um, I don't know the correct term is little people. I'm sorry. I'm terrible. Um, so they used them and put them in spacesuits to create a better proportion for the size of the Nostromo. And so even though it was still shot in a studio space and didn't have as much room around it, they made it look bigger by doing that type of stuff. And I feel like if they would have taken Creature and said, let's go shoot in the Mojave Desert for two nights and get all of our exterior shots out there. And like you had said at the beginning, Shira, I feel like the lab is so poorly constructed because it doesn't look like a lab. It looks like, if anything, a crashed spaceship, which would have made so much more sense. And who cares? Why can't it be both? From? Yeah. Why can't it be yeah. the lab on a, on a crashed spaceship? Well, I mean, obviously, a, a lab in a spaceship is going to involve a lot more production design because you actually have to do, a, you have to construct this room with all this equipment. And all they had was like these tubes and neon lights and rocks, you know. So, I don't know. Yeah, they didn't have a keg, a cave of erotic Geiger designed eggs. <laughs> Uh, um yeah no are the geiger eggs erotic i don't know (laughs) they're they're gross but i feel like i I don't know i'm i definitely do not know as much about alien as you and brett but i think i remember hearing that the original gee it's is it it's guy is it geiger or giger Depends who you talk to. The, his friends, from what I know, watching the the behind the scenes, they say Giger. Okay, so so Giger. Um, but I think didn't his original egg sac design like it looked too sexual, and they were like, "You got to tone it down, man." <laughs> like it probably, to, it needs probably, to look yeah. a little less suggestive. And, and somehow he made it even more sexual. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're talking about filming in the desert, it made me think of um that director uh Tar- Tarsum Singh who did the fall, like you know, like a location in Tanzania or something to to represent a, a barren planet. I think, yeah, there's definitely there's something to that. So uh yeah, in the the interest of time, I, I gotta remind us that we also have uh pitches to give you, Tony, remixes. So you elected to have Brett and I pitch you movies and you will you will play producer essentially and tell us which one of these creature remix remakes you would uh, option to be made. Okay. Uh, so Brett, before we continue, I gotta I always ask, how was it doing the remix for this movie for you? Uh, I mean, it was generally pretty easy only because I didn't realize the first couple times we did this, it was a competition <laughs> and that we were, that we were competing, that we were like overtly competing for I'm the sorry. producer's money. I'm sorry. I didn't make that clear when Jessica was on the podcast <laughs> that we were competing for imaginary money. But I, I really took inspiration from like when you when you tied um when we did Alien Three and you were like, Yeah, let's do kids meals for Alien Three. 
Oh, um, I didn't think of the marketing for this movie at all. Ah, my but... movie is all marketing. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. But just to tell you, Tony, I did come up with this idea that there should be like a McFlurry concrete that has um, a face hugger, like a peanut butter face hugger inside. And I thought that oh, that would God. be that would be incredible. You're Not like, only do I want to eat that, but I want to eat that like that. I want to eat that right now. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I want to go to there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. I I can't wait to hear about the marketing piece. I feel like you may you may triumph this time just on that premise alone. Um, yeah. Money you know, talks. For for me, I I got an idea pretty quickly on this one. Like I I knew like. I don't know, within 30 minutes of watching the movie, like kind of the direction I wanted to go. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to, to see how we do. So which one of us should go first? It's up to you guys. I will go first. All I'll right, try to, Matt. I'll try to pitch a, 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 like I said, a concept before you actually give us a, a real movie. Um, <laughs> so movie theaters right they're they're having a little bit of trouble getting people back into theaters okay one of the things when i saw william malone and i saw crazy low budget sci-fi stuff i thought of william castle okay so how are we going to get people back into the seats of movie theaters right like william castle was always about the gimmicks right we got the tingler and stuff well for this movie we're going to have it so that when you go, you have to like wear some kind of thing or something. But like when you go to the movie, it will, you have to sign into the movie, right? Like whether it's an app or something, the movie is going to be called Like Minds. And so you go to your app store, download Like Minds, and you put in all your information. What we're going to do is, you know, when you go to a horror movie, it's a good date movie. Because, you know, like the, the girl's holding on to the guy and it's like, ooh, and there's fear and it's sexy. So what we're going to do is we're going to play matchmaker and everyone who's in the audience, when they sign into their app, the, the movie is going to take biometrics of the people as they're watching and it's going to pair up the people in the theater so that it will say like this person got like you know, this person was really interested in this scene and this person was really interested in this scene. And those two people would probably get along together because the rom-com aspect of this movie is going to be, we're going to unite people romantically through the horror of the movie. Now, what is the sexy horror of this movie going to be? This movie is going to be like naked lunch, eager <laughs> style, like just weird practical effect sex monsters who are all wacky and crazy and gross but it's so jim be hosking done. does a rom-com yeah exactly and you know and because we're playing in the horror elements we can have like okay so this sexy monster is gonna be like a cinnabite sexy monster right so it's like weird and gross and bdsm and stuff but then this monster can be like a sexy inbred cannibal monster and what we're gonna do is essentially make like a, a mortal combat style tournament where the monsters have to come together and with their like minds every time they mate they share a mind 
And so what we're going to do is essentially just like treat it like an action movie or a tournament movie, like a martial arts tournament movie, where we're just going to find as many excuses as we can to get all these different sexy genre monsters making out and, and making whoopee with each other. And then the audience, because they signed into their Like Minds app, the the app is going to read everyone's minds while they're watching the movie. And then, like I said, at the end of the movie, you can get a little report. Oh, maybe uh, this person liked the same scenes I did. Maybe we should go out, get a coffee, uh, talk about the horror movie. So you mean cabin in the woods in space with kissing? Yeah, I, I don't see a problem here. And, and Mr. Wash, if you've ever wanted to be an, an evil genius megalomaniac who tries to take over the world, we can also throw in a little bit of subliminal messaging like Josie and the Pussycats, and we can pump in our own internal, like, they live, consume, feed, you know, like, we can pump that. We These people are going to be downloading our app. We can feed any kind of subliminal messaging we want to these people. Just I'm think of sure the possibilities. You like, you're not supposed to discuss that publicly. Which you're <laughs> doing. So. Well, <laughs> this sounds like a great partnership opportunity with Bumble or Hinge. Yeah, it's perfect. And like I said, movie theaters they need that gimmick. They need they they need there needs to be a reason for people to go to the movies. And if I'm going to the movies and I'm going to see a sexy, crazy, violent monster orgy movie yeah i'm gonna want to know who else was finding the same scenes i found a little bit interesting instead of gross okay if i can find my cenobite loving soulmate yeah and subliminal messaging oh uh, also think about it this we can use our subliminal messaging to retroactively make everyone forget I even said this. It's the perfect plan. It's the perfect plan. So you want to men in black them too. Yeah. Subliminal messaging, you guys. It's the wave of the future. I mean, yeah. Much the wave of the present. Yeah, yeah. I think the future is now for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That would make a great tagline for a movie. Yeah, because even like I was telling you, my wife watches like Insta stories and she's like, if you spend more time watching a video on a dog, they'll show you more videos on dogs. Yeah. That's messed up. Like, it's cool. I actually think that's cool, but that's really messed up. It sucks when I click on something that's just like, oh, all right, let me just take a look at this one thing. And then my phone's like, you like that one thing that one time? (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I don't like that it listens to you. But anyways, yeah. that's all. That's a tangent. We don't need to go down. All right. So, so that's your pitch. Okay. Do you have a Do you have a title for this experience? Because it's clearly more than a movie. Yes, like minds. Like minds. Yeah. All right. All right. I was originally thinking of trying to do some some other kind of like, you know. Um, it kind of reminded me of like a Rick and Morty-esque idea of like a bunch of people who are part of a collective consciousness, how they would try to yeah to, to find love in that scenario. But then I was like, nah, fuck that. I'm trying to take over the world. I like it. So I, 
I for my my working title, we're going with two creature with love. It was really hard to work in creature into the title, but I really wanted to keep it. But I was like, love creature, love monster. Nah, to creature with love. We'll we'll just we'll start there. Um, so we've got the future, and in this future, Earth's greatest intergalactic cultural export are its dating reality shows. So in my vision of the future, we're still a corporatocracy, but we are driven by our entertainment products, which are highly digestible to aliens. Uh, And then the most popular show is Love Station, which is basically Love Island in space. So our cast and crew of the Shenandoah are now a cast of characters on a dating reality show. David Perkins is the showrunner. Uh, and he has a problem because there's always a problem. Space audiences are starting to drop off because the love station, they won't cast non-human cast members. And the, the space audience wants to see themselves reflected in the media that they consume. It's very, this is the future, but I'm talking about the present, of course. Mm. Uh, but then the Chinese Federation, <laughs> which is responsible for most of the show's funding, has censored all interspecies content from any media that they produce. So it's like he's in a stranglehold. Perkins, he can't cast aliens but then the the audience is dropping off what what are we gonna do so in comes uh i I decided to make melanie kind of the main protagonist of this movie i I know that she's missing from creature for almost the entire (laughs) run but i i thought i would give melanie her day so so she's kind of this tough no nonsense producer it's her job to create storylines you know a la unreal or something like that uh and she's particularly you know in in that conflict over how to make the current season of love station more interesting because this cast of characters are you know they're just they're boring uh so right at the right moment out pops the creature and i decided we should change nothing about how the creature looks i think that it should be exactly how it appears in creature in all of its giger-esque monstrosity uh but also that, that tracks for a shira rom-com <laughs> shira is not shy about just going like okay yeah we're still keeping the goriest grossest elements of the horror movie in our Wait, romantic comedy. Right? Brett, oh, love isn't about appearances. It's about who the creature is inside. Cronenberg of you. Well, is it any surprise that I'm a I'm I'm a Cenobite aligned person in uh in Brett's uh, uh thesis? Yeah, uh right. So so we get some some fun shenanigans like maybe we get like some good ET moments where the producers are trying to hide the creature and he's like in the closet like ET dressed up like a little person you know there's there's a lot of things to diffuse the Cronenbergian 
grossness of the creature and you yeah, know it's like scooby-doo if scooby-doo puts on a dress oh that's a human woman or yeah. or funny <laughs> or like you know maybe he's kind of got some johnny five traits i know how you feel yeah. about short circuit brett but <laughs> you know despite everything the creature makes it onto the air and they can't put the genie back in the bottle the audience is reacting because we'll, we'll say that this is like a live show that's like they're they're producing to air it's like six days to air whatever uh so now it's like national news the creatures on the dating show but the creature is monopolizing the affections of everyone on the show so similar to like the rick and morty episode we can have some humor and the fact that the creature is mind melding with everyone and ruining all these established storylines and it's driving the producers crazy. Um, so that's where I think the humor of this romantic comedy will come from. But as far as a love triangle, I would like it to be Bryce, the creature, and then Slayton as like the de facto girl that everybody would ideally like to be with on Love Station because she's so cool, right? Um, so when the creature is asked to choose a mate, the creature chooses Melanie Bryce and then everybody just goes crazy. And I thought just as a funny thing, we could end the movie on the entire cast and crew becoming homicidal and trying to capture the creature and Melanie as they're leaving the ship because they all want to be with the creature despite it being so ugly. It's like, I don't know. It's the, um... It's the the what it's the MacGuffin. It's the thing that everybody wants, but you don't understand why. Um, and ironically, despite the violent ending to the show's broadcast, this ends with basically an Earth global policy change where interspecies marriage is now accepted. The end. Aww. A happy ending. Aww. A happy ending for all alien human relationships. Okay. Well, um, I think that, uh, unfortunately, I think that Brett's film would have a very difficult time <laughs> of being made and marketed. You know, you, you, you started what? your pitch. You started your pitch out by saying that people like to go to the theater with their significant other or with their date so that they can get close. And then you juxtapose that with an app that sets you up with a different person in the theater. So not only if I go to the theater with my wife and her and I are not linked together, not only would that be weird and super awkward, but if you're there on a date with somebody and you and your date don't get linked up, that's going to be super awkward. And, you know, I mean, wouldn't you rather find out now than later that you're not compatible? <laughs> I think I mean, also, a, the chaos of it is something I approve of, but you also, may have yeah, a point. there's no reason why you can't just get up and switch seats in the middle of a movie. <laughs> I'm look, we can, we can chairs. have a, we can have an usher who's guiding people to be like, Oh yeah, you're, you should probably sit over here. There's someone over here. Musical chairs is a cool concept and all, but uh, I don't know if I would have it dictating my love life, nor would I allow technology to dictate my love life, even though we did meet on Bumble. So it works, but you know what? I, I certainly don't think that it, it's it's something that I would put money behind to, to market a film with. Um, I think 
you were going the right route in the sense of of saying, look, we need to create a gimmick to get people back to the theater. I think that, you know, it's a very timely response to where we're at right now with things in the entertainment uh, community. And, and I think that that it was a really great way to go. I don't know if you went the right direction, in my opinion, um, but it was incredibly creative. I don't think I've ever thought of anybody doing that before. And the fact that the creature has the telepathic nature, I thought was really kind of cool that you tied that into the app creation and the ability to get the audience involved with the viewing. Um, because I'm, I'm all about that. You know, I, my first film, it's my party. I'll die if I want to on the DVD as a choose your own adventure movie. And so I've always been a big fan of creating an experience out of watching a movie, not just, sit on the couch and watch a movie or sit in the theater and watch a movie, especially when you're in the theater with a large group of people, something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the way that they do those screenings is really cool. And I wish that more movies had that cult status. You know, I'm a big fan of Clue. If you could do that with Clue, it's one of my favorite movies. Why don't they do screenings of Clue in the theater, show one of the endings and have, you know, the audience determine it or whatever, or, you know, I, I I think that more movies should do that. So I think in that regard, um, my wife and I are going to see Coldplay on Saturday at Soldier Field. And she's seen them twice before. And she said they do this really cool thing where they give everybody a wristband when you go in. And all the wristbands are synced to the music. So they all light up in conjunction with the melody of the music. And then they show pictures of like what the auditorium looks like. And it's really cool because you got like 60,000 people wearing these wristbands that all light up at the same time to different parts of the music and stuff. And so if you could utilize how much technology has, has evolved at this point into this viewing experience, I think that that is a really cool way to go. I just don't think that trying to set viewers up with other people in the theater you might get one or two real good love stories out of that mix, but uh, think of the general, PR. Think yeah. of the PR. <laughs> we found love. Oh man, we found love through creature, yeah. through like minds. Creature part two. <laughs> yeah, I I don't I don't know uh, I don't know if that's gonna fly, but I certainly give you points for trying. A lot of points for creativity. Um, so I think sure that makes you winner by default. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> um, Shira is easily the reigning champ. I think really? maybe I got one. I got we one. We need to win. get more ghoul friends on the podcast. Uh, yeah. I, I would say that maybe I am now, but we haven't com we haven't completed enough races, I think, to, to call me the reigning champ. I think the really interesting thing about it is that it's an idea that I've never had presented to me. And I've been on a lot of podcasts over the last 15 years that I've been making movies and it's a really cool idea. And I give you both a lot of credit because I, as a filmmaker and storyteller am not as creative, I think as you guys are on the fly, the fact that you spent the last, however many days or hours coming up with these concepts to pitch me, that's the exact reason why I didn't want to pitch you an idea because I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to come up with something that has any legitimate body behind it that I'm going to be able to explain and have them be like, wow, that's actually a really cool idea. I can understand why he's a professional filmmaker. You're going to be like, no, this guy doesn't know jack shit about anything. He didn't put any effort into this. And it's not that I didn't put effort in. I'm just not that creative. 
you know one of the worst things well, we... though is when you start doing a remake and you're like oh man this could actually be a good idea and then like you have to remove yourself from it and go like no no i can't spend too much time thinking about it because i could never actually make it right <laughs> well i think that there's enough there's been i've i mean the movie i just talked about it's my party i'll die if i want to is basically evil dead meets night of the demons meets creep show and if you watch that movie and you love any of those three movies to the point of where especially night of the demons if you love night of the demons to the point of where you're offended if somebody tries to pay homage to it with another film you would watch my movie and say this is a direct ripoff and screw this guy for making this direct ripoff because you're just basically stealing the movie idea to me, it's paying homage, and I don't think there's a problem with that. Um, so oh, you're in the thieves' den. We love thieves here. Yeah. Well, and and clearly, if you're talking about remaking a movie, and you know, all I'm saying is that, especially something from 1985 that is not well known, like Creature, you could probably take your idea and you know go out and and, and get some support behind it being made anyway, because nowadays there are no original ideas wholly, you know. Um, even the North man, which is an incredible film that I watched the other night and was so excited to see it. Everybody, the way they describe it, it's basically any other revenge movie, you know, it's gladiator with a couple of different changes to it, you know, and that's what it is. You know, um, who doesn't love revenge though? I mean, I'd say rom-com fans, we love revenge just as much as anyone. (laughs) I mean, legally blonde is a revenge story. Uh, but, uh, I will say that you caught us on a good day. Like there have been times when I will come to Brett and say, okay, I've got a pitch, but it's like half a floor. We're not going to make it to the top floor, but for half a floor, I can give you this story idea. Um, or I would say today we got close to what I like to call the Amadeus moments where, you know, you just, you get that lightning strike where it's just like, ah, it came to me. And, you know, if you're Salieri, you look at the you look at the music and you're like, there are no notes. There are no changes. <laughs> they just wrote it like this. Um, but, yeah, sometimes sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But I'm with Brett. I think perfection is the enemy of the good. You just have to keep going. I think especially if it's a good idea, you can't let yourself get bogged down. So you you just have to be like, all right, here, they're all going to try to kill them and they have to get off the spaceship. You just have to end it. Well, clearly you guys both were really inspired by creatures. So I'm so (laughs) glad that I I forced you into viewing such a, uh, such a motivational film for your, your ideas. It wasn't just Creature, though. Oh, go ahead, Brett. One of our previous ghoul friends made us watch uh, Friday the 13th Part 8, the Manhattan one. (laughs) But he had a pitch. He wanted to turn it into a jukebox musical, which I I was highly into. And went super meta with it. It was a good pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Friday the 13th. Jason takes Manhattan, the musical. I I would fill that seat. Uh, but yeah, you know, I was saying Creature wasn't the only thing that inspired me. I did take a look at some of your short films prior to this podcast. So uh, do you mind if I, I rattle off a few short pitches for these movies? Oh, we lost them. Oh. Where'd he go? He briced out on us. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, uh -oh. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I was, I've got a note to back up my computer because uh, this is like the second time this has happened in the last month or so. That's scary. That is scary. Well, yeah, you gotta, you gotta be like Android Bryce and disappear for a while to update. Right. <laughs> you got lost, but, but now you're here again. Um, Bang, so was... creature. Creature's dead. <laughs> Um, so I, I was just saying that I, I did prepare, uh, a few little pitches for, uh, three of your films. Uh, would you like to hear them? Yeah, of course. Definitely. I'm sorry that my computer froze. That scares the crap out of me. Cause I got a lot of important stuff on here. So. Well, I was just crestfallen. I was like, "Wow, I guess he really doesn't want to hear." Uh, no, I was getting—I was getting ready to say we were. My friend and I were talking the other day about doing Jason Takes L.A., and I thought that'd be a lot of fun. So, oh yeah, I'll keep going that route. But, anyways, yes, I would love to hear some of your pitches. And so, I, yeah, I was really, you know, as a romance fan, you see the word rake. And it immediately has just completely different connotations from the rake as it's presented in your movie, which is an ancient evil that possesses this girl against her will um, and might be responsible for the death of her parents. But, you know, I think that similar to how you were saying in the beginning that nobody's really been to sleepaway camp. So how do we have all of this information it's very similar for romance fans and Regency England. None of us have any information about Regency times, about Bridgerton times for a more modern reference. But it's like this area of history that romance lovers love to dwell. And so the rake as a character, as a kind of, you know, Regency fuckboy is very familiar to us. Uh, so my pitch for the rake is instead of the sister having this, you know, ancient evil inside of her, she's literally possessed by an 18th century libertine. And, you know, for the record, I think Sinead Grimes could do it. I think she has it in her. Uh, and we get a classic fish out of water. The rake is again, like Johnny five, like short circuit. He's causing well-intentioned trouble wherever he goes in the sister's body shenanigans, including, but not limited to, uh, spreading a rare form of syphilis, uh, discovering TikTok and becoming viral in a different way. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh defacing uh historical artifacts related to lord byron uh and then of course an obligatory research scene because every good horror movie has a research scene where like maybe the brother goes to the library and is like i need to know about rakes and then the librarian gives him all these smutty novels and then he has to fight an old lady for one of them and she's like i want that one i've been waiting for it it's on hold for me uh but yeah i i i really am attached to that idea uh, so that's Where the did rake. You pull that from that is nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. The rake. It's just the rake. It, like I said, the rake. <laughs> the rake is like, yeah, a historical playboy. If you if you saw the Duke in Bridgerton, it's exactly that. Okay. Um, and then for skeletons in the closet, uh, I think we should recall it. Dancers in the closet. 
Uh, and it's an anthology of loosely connected dance themed vignettes that somehow work in a group of dancers that suddenly burst out of a closet. Mm. <laughs> like, like clown car bursting out of a closet or like different closets? Um, like different closets, like one vignette might be like a father giving a son a heart to heart about how to be more of a gentleman. And then suddenly the dancers come out. Um, but you know, like nobody knows when the dancers are going to come out of closets and which closets they're going to come out of, but at some point they're going to come out, but it's, you know, more of like an absurdist piece, you know, it's my Tim and Eric Dadaist comedy entry to this mix. Uh, and then for A Chance in Hell, which is the movie that you and Brett, I think you worked on it together, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a movie about Nazi zombies. I decided we should rename it Weimar Werewolves. And <laughs> it's about, <laughs> it's about, so instead of zombies, they create werewolves from Jewish prisoners, but immediately they revolt against the Nazis, band together to return Germany to Weimar days. And then there's, of course, a romantic plot between one of the werewolves trying to reunite with her husband or something. Um, but yeah, Weimar werewolves. That's like my that pitch. One. That's good. I like that one a lot. Yeah, I those, I mean... <laughs> Like, yeah, where do you come up with this shit? In my <laughs> I, sick, twisted brain. I give you a lot of credit for taking those three ideas and running with them because you definitely did. Um, yeah, I, I I would definitely go for Weimar or for uh, for for Weimar Werewolves and um, and I again, it's just crazy. Did you actually watch those movies and then come up with those, or did you just like read the plots and and like come up with them? I I I read the plots and I came up with them. I had a really tough time finding finding some of your movies online. I I I know some of them are through Vudu, uh, and then some of them you can rent through Vimeo. I didn't send um, you guys any links. I'm sorry. No, I, I got the links to the oh. trailers. Um, oh, I thought I sent you movie links too. Oh, I'm I'm so sorry. Oh, I, it's okay. I didn't. It's okay. I I was only able to find find those. Um, but I'm, I'm highly interested in, in the rake in particular. Um, and, and yeah, they're, they're definitely on my list that, and, uh, yeah, I want to, I want to watch all three of them in full, um, as well as your, your feature. Yeah. Well, you can, you'd have to check out Chance and Hell because that's what Brett and I worked on. So you can kind of see where he and I were a dozen years ago. <laughs> Um, running around an old factory in the middle of the night, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's that a chance in hell was one of the perfect uh, arguments for don't go to film school. Just try to get on film sets. I appreciate Holy that. smokes, man. I learned so much on that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. I learned a lot on that movie too. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Um, it yeah that was an interesting experience but it was a great experience it i think it it set my career up for for the last 10 years that i've been making movies you know where we kind of progressed to better cameras and and higher quality production value and and all that and um just putting the right people in the right places instead of saying hey let's 
let's just get together a little bit of money, you know, and, and get right. friends to make a movie and people will do whatever they think they would enjoy doing as opposed to let's find people that are actually good at their jobs and put those right people in the right places to make something of quality. And not that you can't make something quality without, you know, those things in place. But I think that that is certainly the better way to set up a successful production. And, um, I'm just glad that people such as yourself look back upon that experience and are happy with it and proud of it as opposed to I spent 20 hours a day, eight days in a row, you know, in an old factory where I was probably sucking in asbestos dust and, you know, didn't get any sleep for eight nights and didn't really eat any good food. And, you know, um, I'm just glad that people really were proud of it because it turned into a pretty cool movie. But, yeah. Sounds like a yeah. fun time to me. It was a young man's fun time. I couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost 42, and, and as much as 42 is not old, I don't think I could make a chance in hell today if I if I wanted to. And then I have to ask, you did High on the Hog, which features an excellent head explosion, um, and talk about just saturating with neon lights, all the all the uh, DJ scenes yeah. were just, oh, neon. Perfect. Um, so High on but, the Hog is your latest? No. So I shot High on the Hog in 2012. And in 2016, we did some pickups. That mm-hmm. was released in 2019. Um, and then The Rake was shot in 2015, released in 2018. <laughs> and Skeletons in the Closet was shot between... 2012 and 2017 and released at the tail end of 2017. So it's tough to say which is which. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's kind of between production and release. It's a a bit of a a timeline jumble. Uh, But where can people find, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, so just people need to know, people want to know Sid Haig. Is he, was he as cool off behind the camera as he was in front of the camera 100 percent. sid Haig yeah. is sid Haig is uh, working with him on high in the hog well first of all it's the reason why i directed high in the hog i thought i wasn't impressed with the script at all um it was very it was just it, it was it was the type of movie that i was trying to like steer clear of in the sense of if i'm going to make a second feature I need to make something that's going to be good because I want to try and, and up my reputation as a filmmaker and be taken seriously as a director. Um, and so I originally, my, my friend Jason, and I, who Jason worked on a chance in hell in the special effects department, and we were living together at the time and we got hired to do the special effects for high in the hog because of the head explosion and um, the head getting chopped off with the ax and a couple other scenes. And so we were excited to be a part of a feature and um, we had just worked with the cinematographer Rob Stern on a film that I did for, it's one of the shorts that's in skeletons in the closet. Um, And so we were really excited to kind of be involved in a feature that had a lot of these same people in it. And the producer started talking to me about, you know, all these questions that they had about producing and because neither of them had ever, neither of the producers had ever made a film before. And um, she had gone to the premiere of A Chance in Hell in St. Charles and really was impressed with how well we put together A Chance in Hell. So she was asking me all these questions and stuff. 
And after the third conversation of like an hour and a half on the phone with this woman, I was like, are you going to give me a consulting producer credit or are you asking me to direct your movie? Because I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, you know, my time is kind of worth money and I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but three phone calls at an hour and a half a piece of you talking to me like you don't know anything and I know a lot when I don't know a lot. I, I should be compensated in some capacity. And she's like, well, I kind of want you to direct the movie. I got to talk to the executive producer and I'm like, great, let's do it. Let's make it happen. And so I kind of got, I kind of got asked to direct the movie was really excited about it. And, um, and, and it didn't, you know, the first five days were horrible because that producer was, was horrible. And I have no problem saying that. Um, because obviously I'm not naming anybody, but uh, after the fifth day, the producer actually walked off set and left. And um, the executive producer who wasn't on set called us and was like, what are we going to do? Are we closing down production? And because we were shooting three hours west of Chicago in Galena, Illinois. And so that we were all living out there in this roadside motel. And I got a call from the executive producer and he's just like, are you, are we doing this or are we shutting it down? And I said, well, Rob Stern and I, who's my cinematographer, he and I talked and we basically both said that we will run the set. If you give us producer credits, give our company some points, you know, of ownership in it. And we talked to Bob, who was the guy who was running all the locations. And he said the same thing. He's like, give me a producer credit and I'll do everything I can to make this thing happen. You guys can use my farm and all that. And then Sid Haig was also talked with and Sid really liked what we were doing and liked what he was seeing in terms of the potential from the first five days of shooting. And so he came on as a producer and that night before we started shooting, Sid, Rob, and I all stood up in front of everybody and said, look, guys, we've got a 22-day schedule. We're five days in. Obviously, we had a real big wrench thrown in the gears today with the producer walking off set, but the executive producer has promoted the three of us to producers. If you guys are willing to give us two extra days of shooting, because the producer who was who walked off set was also in the movie. So we had to reshoot some of her scenes with a new actress that we had to find on the fly. Um, so he was, we were like, look, if you're willing to give us two more days of your time at the end of the production, we're going to shoot for 24 instead of 22 and we're going to make this thing. And at that point, everybody was so happy about the new dynamic potential of the set that we were like, let's do it. And from day five until day 24, it was one of the best experiences of my life. And, um, and so, you know, we, Sid is just one of those people or was just one of those people who um, you can tell that he understood and respected the fact that people in this business either know everything or don't know anything. And that he was willing to roll with the punches on those different projects, you know, in terms of the level of experience. Um, he was very good about making you feel important when he, when you gained his respect. Um, and that to me is one of the biggest compliments I'll ever take out of being a filmmaker now for the better part of two decades is that Sid Haig, who's been making movies for 55 years, you know, really complimented me on my ability to direct him and, and kind of work on the spot and come up with things on the fly um, to help fill in gaps and, and solve problems that we were handed last minute. And uh, that's a lot of what that film's production was, but it ended up being a, a really cool project. And 
um, you know, I think that that in the end, it ended up being a really great movie. Uh, yeah. One of the things I really liked about it was like five minutes in, I was like, okay, I get it. Like I get the skit aspect of like, okay, we got this idea. All right. That's, that's cool. But like, I, I, I get it. The movie's gonna like become a normal low budget movie at any point. Right. But then 10 minutes into the movie, I was like, nope, this movie doesn't hit the brakes in terms of, you know, you guys stick to a style and it, for for 90 minutes man it was it was pretty relentless about the fact that like nah man (laughs) we're gonna make a crazy fun movie well Um, and that's the interesting thing about it i i give a lot of credit to the editor ben for that because what happened is, is we made the movie we had an editor attached who did a really good job of building a cut of the movie but when all said and done the movie took a, a hard left turn from the original script, as I said, where it was very grindhouse, very dirty, very raunchy, and just very, in a lot of ways, it was kind of offensive at some points. Like modern audiences, I don't think would would be very forgiving yeah. of it. And because it's very grindhouse, and, and I understand what, what they were going for with that, but I don't think that that would be accepted nowadays. And so... Not to mention the fact that as we were shooting the movie, the actors were taking their characters in a certain direction. And with all the, the curveballs we were thrown with the producer leaving and everything, we were basically like at the point where we started watching how the film evolved. And and Brett, you would know from being on movie sets, and I don't know sure if you've done film work at all, but but films tend to evolve as you make them on set. And they are defined in three different stages on on paper in the script format while you're shooting them and then in the editing room. And High and the Hog really took on a different character as we were shooting it. And 10 days into it, I actually got together with Sid after shooting one day and we went to the bar and had a couple of beers together. One of my favorite experiences ever. And just him recanting stories of being in this in the industry since the 50s and stuff like that. And then, oh, it was so cool. And, and he, and I always tell that story and I hate it because anybody who listens to all these podcasts I'm on always hears that, but it legitimately is one of the best experiences I've ever had in my 15 years of making movies. And so I had this dilemma where I was just like, Sid, clearly it's obvious that this film is taking on two different, you know, basically dynamics. You have this grindhouse feel that we're going for but then you also have this heartfelt drama between these characters that you guys are doing such a wonderful job of portraying that i feel like audiences are going to get behind and want to see these people survive and win in the end and so how do we mix those and he said well tony you know first of all you got to talk to the executive producer and if he is on board with the route we've been taking this. Let's keep going this path because it's a good one. And this is the potential that I see in this that I like. And so I said, okay. So we went back that night. And then the next day I basically reworked maybe half of, of the story. Talked to the executive producer. He gave me the go ahead. He said, as long as you guys can finish the movie, I don't care. Cause at that point he was so worried that he was going to lose all of his money <laughs> with the movie, not getting finished. And so that that kind of was, in, in a way, that producer walking off set on the fifth day was a blessing in disguise because it gave me a lot more freedom of creativity. And 
And Sid and I really just sat down with the rest of the cast at that point and said, look, guys, here's what we want to do. Are you okay with it? And they said, heck yeah. And, and so Sid's blessing and support really changed everything for me. And so from there, we had this movie. It was cool, but it wasn't super grindhouse. It was a lot more of a drama with crime undertones and the whole marijuana, obviously, as, as the primary thing to it. And so then after this original edit was created and some distributor looked at it and said, eh, it's not really what we're going for. And at the time, 2016, 2015, movies weren't really being picked up like they are right now because of the COVID shortage. And so there was a point where Ben, who had been working on Skeletons in the Closet with us at the time, it was called Chop Shop. And at the time, Ben was editing The Rake with me before our LA producers took the movie from us and decided to do their own thing with it, which I could spend an hour talking about. Um, Ben had basically gone to the producer and said, like, look, I have an idea to completely rework this edit. And Ben is very into the Red Bull and cigarette type of let's just make everything balls to the wall music video style. And so he's like, that's what I want to do. And then Ben and I spent the next part, the the better part of the next two years editing it. And and Ben's the editor. I I can't take credit for the edit, but Ben and I spent a lot of time sitting and watching the movie and coming up with ideas together and talking about ideas and, you know, getting fucked up and coming up with crazy (laughs) shit together, you know? And it's like the, what I liked about working with Ben is that Ben was always really supportive of saying, okay, I'm the editor, but you're the director. So if you have an idea, I'm going to try and bring it into the edit or, you know, even small things as small as like we would edit to music. And so we used a lot of like Pink Floyd in the original soundtrack that we edited it to. And so there were times where like he'd be, he'd cut a scene to a song and I'd say, you you did a good job of pairing the song to the scene, but what you need to do is you need to cut it more melodically so that it matches the rhythm of the song. Because even when we get the song replaced with something that our composer does, it's going to just, it's going to feel a little bit better. And so we, we worked really well in that regard. And in the end, we came up with what you saw, which I think is a great mix of Ben's ability to create a cool fast-paced balls to the wall edit and my ability to tell a story that you still care about instead of saying yeah well it was a fun movie and i'm so glad i smoked a bong before i watched it but (laughs) there are no redeeming qualities to it now at least i hope people say you know what i cared about sid and the family on that farm and i didn't want to see them you know what happens to them i didn't want to see that happen to them because i cared about them um and so you know, in the end, I think it turned out to be a pretty good movie. And uh, it's an interesting experience altogether between shooting it and editing it and the reshoots, which is when we did the the DJ stuff, which Rob and I really said, let's take to live and die in LA and let's just yeah. boom, you know, which and then a year later or two years later, Neon Demon came out. And we were like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. We just we we're apparently got the collective subconscious of, of visuals down so i uh just how it's just so weird when you go into making a movie and you know that your end product is not gonna be the perfect movie you have pictured in your head but at the same time trusting that process to deliver something better 
uh it's so scary but also invigorating well i think that people have to if you're in the film industry you have to understand that film is one of the few music if you're if you're in a band or an orchestra for example but but film is one of the one of the the collective creative arts um that are out there and so if you go into making a movie and you you in your mind think i am going to be the only determining factor in how this film looks you're a freaking idiot and you're and you're an ego too which is a big problem and that's how a lot of people i've met a lot of those people in this industry and and it's unfortunate because in a lot of ways those people ruin the potential of a project because they think well i know best and you don't and and I've been in both situations, you know, on a chance in hell, there was a moment when we were shooting that scene in the hallway where they find the ax with the hand on it and the hand is severed. And I remember when we were setting that up, Mitch Martinez, our cinematographer and I were in the hallway and, and he had lit it and we were talking about our shot sequences and stuff. And Andrew, who had been helping us with, I think he was in the army or the Marines was helping us with yeah. how these guys would be walking through the walkway. You know, they would not be just walking down the hall. They'd be stopping and making sure there's no enemies and scouting it and whatnot. And we were talking about it and there were like two other people in the hallway at the same time. And they were like throwing ideas at how, oh, well, maybe you can do this or you should do it from here or do this. And finally, after like 10 minutes, Mitch and I just kind of looked at each other. And I remember turning to everybody and saying, guys, I really appreciate the feedback and the ideas. But we need to, Mitch and I need to talk about this because ultimately it's it's up to us. And right. everybody needs to know their place on a film set. But I've always, always been a big proponent of saying, look, if you're a part of this, we're a family. And I want you to yeah. feel like you had a hand in, in structuring the way that this movie looks or feels. And, um, and I think that's why, you know... I'll pat myself on the back and say that I have a bit of an ego, but I think that the films that my team has produced are pretty good quality. And and that's not on my account. I do a good job of putting people in the right places. I think I have a lot of talented friends that do really, really wonderful work and know their shit. And, uh, and as a result, they make my movies look good and sound good and feel good and, you know, have cool monsters and blood and guts and, um, and so I think that that there there is a give and a take there, you know. I'd say it sounds like you have a pretty healthy ego. You you know you're a diamond formed under pressure. You're responding to the environment. <laughs> uh, what is it that Rahm Emanuel used to say? Never waste a good crisis. Yeah, uh, that's you, a good you quote. Know, yeah, you just you you take advantage of of what you have and you work with it and you move on um, because you can't you can't be at a standstill. I think that's very admirable, a, a really admirable way to look at it. Well, I don't quit. I, and, and that's, that's something that I'm very proud of is the fact that my ego comes from my confidence in the fact that I garner the respect that I've gotten over the, the years I've been making movies. I mean, and I'm sure Brett can attest to that on a chance in hell, it was not an easy movie to make by any means, but if I'm going to get, 50 people together like we had on a chance in hell and I'm going to get people to give me money and rely on me to give them a finished product. The last thing I'm going to do is be the one to buckle under pressure. And a lot of people, 
you know, it's sad because a lot of people that rubs them the wrong way because they look at it and they say, oh, well, you know, like, for example, a lot of people give the director all the credit. And I don't think that that's fair. I think that the director is one of many when it comes to creating a quality film or a bad film. And and that's where that is the give and take is I say, well, you know, for example, a producer on one of the films I've worked on we don't, you know, it's like, we don't have a good relationship because that producer felt like I received all the credit. And it's like, I don't ask for that credit. It's given to me because I'm the director. And that's just how the, that's just how the industry has been. The entertainment industry has always been like that. The lead singer in a band gets all the credit. It's just how it is, you know, but, but the, the, the flip side to that is, is if the movie tanks, you're the captain of the ship and you sink with the ship. You know, a producer can go make another movie, but if a director makes a bad movie, it is difficult to go out and get the money to make another film because people only think about the stinker that you just finished directing, you know? Um, and so it's, it, it's a very tough position to be in. And uh, I, I certainly hope to make another movie in the next year or two. Um, and I have a couple of potential projects going, but at the same point in time, I, I'm very, I'm very content in my my current position of of you know making decent money at a, at a job and you know having good benefits, working on my house that we just moved into, and um, and working for Bloody Disgusting, uh, you know, which is which is pretty awesome. Um, so you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, I do still want to make more movies, and I really hope to get another one going in the near future because I've got a lot of things set up to make that happen, but. There's also so much stress involved with it and, and egos and stuff that, you know, at the end of the day, maybe I just want to come home and sit on the couch, you know, and relax. Well, whenever we get the next entry in the Tony Wash cinematic universe, count me in. I appreciate that. Thank you. So, Tony, where can everybody find you? Uh, you can go to my website, which is scotchworthy.com. Scotchworthy is like a bottle of scotch and worthy, like we are not worthy, all one word. <laughs> it, it, it steers back to an old bet between a friend and mine when I, when I was starting to make movies. Otherwise, people have no idea why it's called Scotchworthy Productions. Um, so you can go to scotchworthy.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook as Tony Wash. I don't really use Scotchworthy on Facebook much. But you can find Scotchworthy on Instagram. Uh, you can find our, our trailers on YouTube and Vimeo. Uh, our movies, The Rake, Skeletons in the Closet, High on the Hog, they're on Amazon. They're on Tubi. They're on uh, you know all the different streaming sites I'm imagining at this point. And then, like I said, I work for BloodyDisgusting.com doing their programming for their television channel, BDTV. I also help with acquisitions for Screenbox, which is their streaming service similar to Shudder. And uh, I also curate and produce their show called Bloody Bites, which features short horror films from around the world that we've collected. Um, and I'm pretty proud That's of awesome. that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of Bloody Bites. It's an evolution of, of our original show called World of Death, which we had streaming through Bloody Discussing's YouTube channel. We featured over 500 short films and we represented more than 50 countries with world of death, which is a huge, um, a huge accolade that I consider for, for us, for my co-producer Jim and I, because, um, you know, it's just such a neat community that we created 
and uh, and Bloody Disgusting is one of the largest horror websites and arguably the largest right. name in horror next to Fangoria. So um, I think it's pretty cool that we're able to utilize their uh, their avenues of promotion to get these filmmakers, you know, names and products out there for people to see. So that's on the channel. That's on Screenbox. You can find Bloody Disgusting Television on Roku through the Roku channel app. It's one of the live streaming channels. Um, you can also find that stuff on Peacock, uh, or not Peacock, sorry, Pluto, Sling, um, all over the place. And you can sign up right now for a free month of Screenbox, which is pretty cool, too. So you might as well go on and check that out if you like horror movies. That is definitely worth checking out. And of course, want to remind everybody that you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Necromancer Pod, as well as anywhere where you listen to podcasts. We highly encourage you to rate us and review. And now comes one of my favorite moments of the podcast. We call it Love Bites. Uh, not Bloody Bites. Maybe they're Bloody Love Bites. Uh, yeah. But this is the, the end of the podcast where we use this time just to recommend something to the listeners it could be a movie a series one time brett recommended sporks uh so yeah the, utensils yeah utensils you can recommend utensils uh okay. dogs uh but yeah you, you got anything you want to recommend to our listeners that they get into all right i'll recommend three things i recommend the north man because i just watched it and i really loved it intense battle sequences with great violence um, a good story with a main character, two main characters that you really like. Um, beautiful cinematography. So I highly recommend The North Man. I recommend Creature because you know what? Yeah. If you're a horror movie fan and if you like 80s horror movies, which I'm assuming a lot of your audience is probably a horror movie fan, Creature is a pretty good alien ripoff that is worth yeah. a couple of beers or a glass of whiskey or whatever your 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 vice it's is. It's scotch-worthy. It's very scotch-worthy. <laughs> You know, whatever your vice is, suck a couple down, suck a couple in, and pop on Creature because it's a lot of fun if you're watching that. And I also do not recommend buying an old house and renovating it because, as you guys know, (laughs) it's been two years in the making. Today is actually the two-year anniversary of when my wife and I closed on this house. And um, it has been a long process of getting it renovated and cleaned up and furnished and we had to delay our, our uh, podcast recording for a couple of weeks here because of us moving in and getting everything situated. So I do not recommend buying an old house and renovating, especially during the highest inflation rate in 40 years. So, and you don't yeah. even know if it's haunted yet. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's not. I mean, I've spent time. I've spent. We had a breaker trip, and I had to go down to the basement in the middle of the night. So I'm, mm. I'm pretty sure... And I've been up in the middle of the night. My my wife sleeps here by herself when I work overnight. So if it was haunted, we would know at this point. No so. suspicious music boxes. We didn't find anything in the walls. And we opened, I'd say, 95% of the walls up when we <laughs> renovated. So all I can say is that we decided that we're not moving because we've spent so much time and effort on making this house ours. So this is our forever home, meaning that when we die, we will haunt this house. 
<laughs> and uh, so, yes, you were the ghosts. Yeah, you were the ghosts all along. It yes. sounds like ju- it sounds just like an A twenty four movie. Very A twenty four, which is not my bag. I'm looking more at Beetlejuice. I just don't want the yeah, people who move like in that. to have this gross, like contemporary art style of, of decorating. I'd, I'm hoping that we get. Although no I would mind O'Hara's. I would totally haunt Catherine O'Hara because I love her to death. <laughs> so that's what I don't and do recommend. Lovely. Uh, Brett, what about you? Uh, well, sure. I sent it your way because I know that you're a fan of mixed martial arts. Yeah. But I recently watched uh, a guy on YouTube called Napoleon Blown Apart. And he does fantastic breakdowns of MMA people. Like there's a couple, I know that Anderson Silva is one of, if not your favorite, right? I love Anderson Silva. He is in my mind, the Dalsim of MMA. What a, Uh, really? You like MMA? So random. Uh, great great storylines. I love us, you know. I would say, yeah, the narratives. If you're a nerd who has yet to get into sports, just watch some documentaries, watch Napoleon Blown Apart. There are so many great narratives in sports, and a lot of them are in fighting. And and a lot of his are pretty bite sized, kind of like 20 minute videos, but he's got a three part series that's a total breakdown of Pride Fighting Championship. And it was fascinating because he's funny and he's informative and he represents the sport really well. And so, yeah, I didn't really know, like, I know MMA a little bit. Like, I know some names. I know the general concept of striking versus ground and pound versus grappling and all that. But, like, to hear the business aspect mixed in with the narrative aspect of boxers. Oh, well, the business of pride is pure chaos. It's Kumite. You... It is a hundred percent blood sport, kumite, yeah. street fighter. I, I highly recommend if if you don't know anything about Pride FC and you're a fan of combat sports, it is totally worth it to go on an internet investigation because I think people take it for granted. Like people look at UFC and they're like, oh, it's so violent. And and I want to say, like, you have no idea. Because the Yakuza was an active part of Pride. Well, one of the things that, like, I I am a fan of unsimulated violence, oddly enough, even though I am a romance fan. And I would even say that the changes between UFC and Pride when it came to rules were good changes. Because one of the things that made Pride so crazy, and again, if you're into combat sports, go watch it. Um, you could kick a grounded opponent and you take for granted how crazy that is to see a man soccer kick another man's head. It's not supposed to be done. So I think that UFC is totally in the right when it comes to some some restrictions and regulations are okay. You do need restrictions. And I think that is a good restriction. You shouldn't be able to kick having a fighting commission is a good thing. Uh, I've never I never never... would have pictured someone who speaks about Lord Byron and Tchaikovsky (laughs) in one moment and then starts talking about dudes getting soccer kicked in the head while they're laying on the ground. I never would have pictured you as being an MMA fan. I don't I don't fit into one box and I I will I will say like I 
I, into one puzzle box. It, Shira into is one, the puzzle box. Yeah, I don't, I don't fit into <laughs> one pu- puzzle box. Uh, I've got many such sites to show you, both good <laughs> and bad. Uh, but yeah, like I think, you know, honestly, I would say that it, I, I've talked about it in the podcast before. But I think one of the reasons why I tend to be so drawn towards fluffy, sweet innocent and you know romantic fluffy things is because i have been so overexposed to horror and martial arts and like fighting and growing up around guys i i like to joke that i'm a recovering not like other girls uh but i'm in recovery for this condition uh but but yeah it doesn't change the fact that i i absolutely went through an mma phase and and we'll still catch cards here and there but yeah if you're new to being into the sport i i would totally highly recommend following brett's example and and watching some old videos because it's crazy Mm. very nuts uh, so, Shira, how about you? What's your love bite? So, speaking of soccer kicks, um, I would actually like to recommend uh, Major League Soccer. Uh, I recently went to an Austin FC game here in our local city, and it was so much fun. I feel like I'm Elijah Wood. This is my green street. I'm a hooligan now, uh, and, and I'm fully into supporting Austin FC all the way to the Western Conference. So if you have yet to get into soccer or football, as they call it, I would highly recommend, you know, watching some of the games of whichever team is in your city. If you're an L.A. guy, L.A. FC and L.A. Galaxy are both really good teams. Uh, And the great thing about soccer is most of the games are around 90 minutes and Brett, you know how much I love a 90-minute movie. So a 90-minute sports commitment is even better. You know, with a football game or a basketball game, the last four minutes of the fourth quarter could go on forever. But not so with soccer. No. It, it, has a, it has a hard stop. So, yeah, I, I recommend MLS. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Austin FC in particular because we're doing so well. Very interesting. Yeah. Now we just combine soccer with uh, MMA. We create <laughs> blood ball. I love that we've idea. Got a, we've got a <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like like Rocket League, but more violence. Mm-hmm. And no cars. <laughs> I, I'm getting into Formula One, too, but that's a that's a recommendation for another day. Um, well, Tony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We really loved having you on. Thanks for watching creature. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I had a fun time talking to you guys. This is definitely a dynamic of a podcast that I'm not accustomed to. And and I thought it was pretty cool because obviously at the end, we were able to talk about my movies for a couple of minutes, but, uh, it was just neat to be able to have an entirely different dynamic to the conversation. And, and um, I like that we analyzed a movie that I've enjoyed for a long time as a guilty pleasure and uh, get some differing opinions on it. And um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. So thanks for inviting me to be a part of the show. Yeah. We're glad to hear that. All right, Brett, how would big daddy creature sign us off? Okay. Well, ask me to read the statement (laughs) that big daddy creature sent us to sign us off. 
please go ahead and read the statement that Big Daddy Creature has sent us to sign us off. I can't. This shit's written in German. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.